0: on november 24, 1971 the day before thanksgiving a flight crew boarded a plane from portland oregon bound for seattle
1: it was supposed to be a routine 25-minute flight that plan changed in mid-air when one of the stewardesses received a note from a passenger thinking the man was just giving her his phone number the stewardess stuffed the note into her purse the man got her attention
0: again saying quote miss You'd better look at that note. I have a bomb, end quote.
1: After touching down in Seattle, the airline supplied his requested ransom demands, $200,000 in cash, and four parachutes.
0: The hijacker, who went by the assumed name of Dan Cooper, was calm, polite, even generous at one point, offering to share some of the ransom money with one of his hostages.
1: The plane took off again, this time from Mexico City, with a planned stop in Reno, Nevada, leaving the crew, the FBI, and the public to guess what Dan Cooper was planning to do with four parachutes and a bag of money.
0: Today, more than 46 years later, they are still guessing. Guessing. Hi, I'm Richard.
1: And I'm Molly. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing.
0: Each week, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned, from the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts.
1: If it vanished, we're looking for it.
0: If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the
1: podcast. Today, we'll be looking into the greatest airborne heist of the 20th century when the man known as D.B. Cooper seized control of an airplane, ransomed $200,000, and vanished literally, into thin air.
0: The early 1970s were a different time. Boarding a plane was like boarding a bus. There were no restrictions about needing a boarding pass to enter a terminal. There were no metal detectors. You didn't even need to show a photo ID. So, airplane hijackings, known as skyjackings, were a routine fact of life. When Dan Cooper boarded that Seattle-bound 727 on November 24, 1971, the most recent aircraft hijacking had occurred just 12 days earlier. And that wasn't unusual. From 1968 to 1972, there were more than 130 skyjackings, or one almost every 11 days.
1: Many hijackings in the late 60s and early 70s were motivated by political causes. Armed terrorists took control of planes, demanding that the pilots, quote, take this plane to Cuba.
0: But unlike the take this plane to Cuba style hijackers, Dan Cooper didn't want to promote any ideas or manifestos. He just wanted $200,000. In 1971, the equivalent of more than $1.2 million in today's
1: value. We don't know who Cooper really was. D.B. Cooper is not his real name. Dan Cooper is the alias he gave to the airline worker who sold him his ticket. But the public knows him as D.B. Cooper because of an error made by a journalist rushing to meet a print deadline.
0: We don't know what happened to him after he vanished into the rain clouds above Oregon, the facts we know about the case begin with him boarding the plane, and they stopped when he jumped from it. In the wake of the skyjacking, the FBI meticulously recreated Cooper's steps from the entrance to the Portland airport to his final steps off the 727's rear staircase.
1: It was just before 2 p.m., November 24, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. A nondescript man in a suit entered the Portland airport. We know he confirmed the plane was a 727 before he bought his ticket.
0: He gave his name as Dan Cooper. He checked no bags. He had only a carry-on attache case with him.
1: Cooper left Portland via gate 52 onto flight 305. There were no assigned seats. Cooper chose seat 18C, according to Ralph Himmelsbach, the FBI agent who led the subsequent investigation. The plane had barely taken off when he had his first interaction with stewardess Florence Schaffner.
0: Schaffner asked him to stow his briefcase. He responded by wordlessly passing Schaffner his famous ransom note. He demanded $200,000 in cash and four parachutes, two main chutes and two backups.
1: Schaffner kept her demeanor professional. She knew she could not let the other passengers know that anything was wrong, even as this calm, quiet man showed her what appeared to be a bomb.
0: According to Schaffner's memory of the events, Cooper instructed her, Tell your captain I am taking charge of this plane. These are my demands. Let him read them and then bring the note back to me. Understand? I want it back.
1: The plane was still ascending as Schaffner made her way to the cockpit to give them the note as instructed.
0: Flight 305 had been aloft for less than two minutes by the time the entire flight crew realized that the plane had been hijacked.
1: The pilots radioed Northwest Airlines headquarters for instructions. Company headquarters alerted the FBI. And the company also instructed the pilot, William Scott, to comply with all of the hijacker's demands.
0: His note was quite specific. Four parachutes. Four parachutes were enough for two skydivers. If Cooper was going to take a hostage with him on a jump out of the airplane, then he was going to be in control of the situation for some time.
1: Based on this demand, the FBI took Cooper quite seriously. If he had thought this far ahead on how to handle his hostages, it made attempting an armed confrontation or storming of the aircraft, very risky.
0: It also meant they could not end his crime spree by simply giving him defective parachutes. They couldn't risk a defective chute being given to a hostage.
1: The airline wanted to avoid liability and danger as much as possible. Rather than confronting the hijacker, the company preferred to find the money to pay him off.
0: Besides, the airline's insurance would probably cover the financial
1: loss. The FBI has a standard policy of taking its cue from the victims of a hostage situation. In this case, they view the airline as the victim. If its corporate leadership wanted to cooperate and pay the ransom, then that is what they try to do without firing a shot. To the best of our knowledge, this policy remains in effect today.
0: All of the Bureau's plans were based on assumptions that Cooper's bomb was real and worked. They couldn't be sure, but they had to take it seriously.
1: Many suspected the bomb was fake, and you can see why. Though we know little else about him, we know this. Cooper was a con man.
0: Cooper's demands began getting more specific. He asked that the money and parachutes be brought to the plane once it landed in Seattle, and that the plane stay in the air above Seattle until the demands were ready.
1: He did not want it delayed once it was on the ground and he did not want any people or equipment to approach it once it was on the ground.
0: When Schaffner returned from the cockpit, she dutifully returned his note, which is why we'll never be able to perform handwriting analysis on
1: it. Keeping up appearances, the crew served drinks to the passengers. Cooper, still calm and genial, tried to tip the stewardess, but his tip was declined. On the ground, authorities scrambled to find $200,000 in cash. They chose $20 bills, knowing a bulky, heavy money bag would be more difficult for Cooper to hide or conceal if he did somehow manage to escape. The FBI also struggled to find parachutes. For someone who appeared to be prepping a jump, Cooper didn't seem to have requested all the appropriate gear.
0: He was wearing a business suit and light rain jacket, not a jumpsuit or rugged boots, and he wasn't asking for any gear other than the chutes themselves. Did he really intend to jump? He seemed very confident for a person who planned to jump in the middle of a raging storm without any survival equipment.
1: The FBI offered Cooper military parachutes, but he declined them, knowing they opened automatically. He wanted a manual ripcord. He did not explain why. This caused problems. All the local skydiving schools were closed due to Thanksgiving. Around 5 p.m., authorities finally reached a skydiving instructor who could help. The FBI took four shoots in a hurry, not realizing in their haste that one of the backup shoots was a non-functioning training shoot, not a real shoot. Time was of the essence as the aircraft was circling over SeaTac, Seattle's airport. While they put all this together, looping high above the city of Tacoma, What was normally a 25-minute flight had become almost three hours.
0: The plane did not have unlimited fuel, and the longer it spent in the air, the more likely its passengers might figure out what was going on.
1: But these passengers were used to this trip and familiar with how long it should take. One passenger did comment to her husband that either the plane had been hijacked or they'd boarded the wrong flight.
0: Another male passenger later told reporters he had become jealous of the attention stewardess Tina Mucklow was paying to that older man. He assumed she was flirting when in fact she was negotiating a hostage situation. Cooper seemed to trust Mucklow more than anyone else in the crew, so she willingly volunteered herself as the messenger between the bomber and the cockpit.
1: As the flight circled SeaTac, The involved parties settled into a tense game based on cautious mutual trust.
0: The pilots, especially the co-pilot, Bill Ratacek, felt Cooper was behaving rationally and could be reasoned with. The pilots never spoke to Cooper directly, going off what the stewardesses told them, but they trusted the judgment of their flight crew. The pilots and crew insisted that corporate headquarters needed to meet Cooper's demands without attempting to confront him.
1: Without any agents on the plane, the FBI was in the dark and relied entirely on reports from the cockpit. They couldn't apply the psych profile they'd put together for skyjackers, which was based on protesters trying to, quote, take this plane to Cuba, end quote. Most aircraft hijackings in the early 70s were politically motivated and intimately tied to Cold War geopolitics, but not this one, so the psych profile was useless. The FBI chose to trust the judgment of Radicek, who in turn chose to tentatively trust Cooper.
0: Plus, it is important to note that other skyjackings had ended badly when authorities stormed the plane.
1: Some ended on a positive note, such as the incident in Great Falls, Montana, less than two weeks before Cooper's hijacking. In that case, the passengers and crew subdued the hijacker while the plane was still grounded.
0: But other hijackings had ended with deadly shootouts and multiple casualties. That couldn't happen this time. The pilots didn't want to put passenger or crew lives at risk.
1: But the FBI did not simply throw up its hands and give up. They took steps to ensure that once the hostage threat was over, they would be able to pursue Cooper.
0: They ran each of the $20 bills through microfiche, capturing their serial
1: numbers. And as a contingency, snipers were positioned around the runway. If a fight broke out on the ground, there was nowhere on the plane for Cooper to hide.
0: At 5.24 p.m., almost three hours after the flight had taken off, Cooper was told that his demands had been met. The chutes were ready, so was the money, and the plane would be refueled upon landing.
1: And at 5.39 p.m., per Cooper's demands, the plane landed at SeaTac, Seattle's airport. They cleared runway 16R for the emergency landing.
0: Although every precaution had been taken, no one was sure whether all would go smoothly when the plane landed.
1: The demands had been hard to meet. They had been unable to land the plane in what Cooper had requested as a secure, well-lit area.
0: The parachutes were delayed and delayed and delayed. Cooper grew skeptical that they were actually going to be delivered he started to think he was being set up.
1: Snipers watched as the rain poured down, droplets pelting the 727 and the courier car and fuel truck approaching it.
0: The situation was ripe for a tragic misunderstanding.
1: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now,
0: back to Gone. In 1971, D.B. Cooper, not his real name, had successfully hijacked Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle. Now, at 5.39 p.m., the night before Thanksgiving, the FBI was trying to meet his demands so that Cooper would allow the passengers and flight crew to leave safely.
1: As the fuel truck neared, Tina Mucklow, the stewardess who had become Cooper's liaison with the airline and the FBI, darted out into the rain toward the courier car.
0: When she came back aboard carrying the bag of money and four parachutes, most of the passengers connected the dots about why their landing had been delayed.
1: The silence that followed was tense as Cooper counted the money and chutes.
0: Satisfied, he allowed the passengers to deplane. At 6.05 p.m., they left via the rear stairs, 2,000 feet from the terminal, into the cold rain.
1: But the skyjacking was not over. Cooper still had hostages, the pilots and the flight crew. The stewardesses were supposed to be released next, but for now, he still had them. The plane had been on the ground for a tense hour and a half.
0: The FBI, desperate for any information that might help shine a light on Cooper's motives, was finally able to get one small detail, the name he used to board.
1: Based on who boarded the craft and who got off, They knew the man who was now in control of the plane had boarded under the name Dan Cooper.
0: The FBI questioned everyone who got off the airplane. They got a more detailed description of who they were dealing with. A middle-aged Caucasian man, 5'10", brown eyes and hair, wearing a business suit. FBI investigator Himmelsbach felt sure that once the hijacking was over, they'd have everything they needed to bring him to justice.
1: But outside, not all was going according to plan. The fuel truck had encountered an issue with the plane's vapor lock. They couldn't refuel it. It sounded like a transparent stall tactic. It's exactly the sort of thing the FBI might have said if they needed more time to position a sniper.
0: Cooper didn't buy it. The FBI agents were mortified that a legitimate mechanical failure might lead to a total breakdown in negotiation or even the detonation of the bomb. The airport rushed another fuel truck out onto the tarmac.
1: Just because the passengers were no longer aboard didn't mean negotiations were finished. Cooper was now discussing with the flight crew where he wanted to go, which was Mexico City. As the plane could not make it to Mexico City on the fuel it could carry, they settled on Mexico City by way of Reno, where they would refuel again.
0: By 7 p.m., Cooper was impatient. He'd been on the ground for an hour and a half, waiting. The second truck had run out of fuel and had not finished filling the tank. A third truck had to be sent.
1: Cooper demanded the plane take off with the rear staircase open. The staircase was a ramp at the back of the passenger cabin that was sometimes used for passengers boarding from the tarmac. Cooper's earlier flight had done exactly that.
0: But it could also be used to bail mid-flight, without hitting a wing or being sucked into an engine.
1: The pilot informed him that the plane could not take off with the staircase open. It would sparkle along the runway, and with so much jet fuel and vapors nearby, they risked starting a fire or an explosion.
0: Cooper conceded that they would take off with the stairs closed, but in exchange, one of the three stewardesses would be kept aboard as an additional hostage, rather than released as promised.
1: So when flight stewardesses Florence Schaffner and Alice Hancock deplaned, Tina Mucklow was not with them. After several tense minutes, the fuel was finally loaded, and they were ready for takeoff. It was 7.40 p.m. They'd been on the ground for more than two hours.
0: As the airliner took to the skies again, the Air Force dispatched two jets. One would fly above the 727, and the other below it, out of Cooper's field of view.
1: Cooper instructed Captain Scott to fly at 10,000 feet or less, with flaps at 15 degrees and gear down, limiting the speed to 200 knots. This was an extremely specific demand that suggested familiarity with the plane.
0: Most commercial airliners could not fly at that altitude and speed without stalling, but a 727 could. And most people wouldn't know that.
1: Most commercial airliners also didn't have a rear staircase from which someone could deplane mid-flight. It certainly wasn't public knowledge that the 727 was this way, but some Vietnam War pilots had used it that way for airdrops.
0: He apparently knew the rear staircase was safer than the side door.
1: Safer. It was raining. It was winter. And it's even colder at 10,000 feet. The
0: FBI had become increasingly convinced that this would matter, that Cooper's plan was to bail. But even four hours into the hostage situation, nobody knew who Cooper was or what he had planned. They searched criminal databases for his name, but uncovered no leads.
1: Still, they cleared the skies of air traffic 4,000 feet above or below the 727's route, and a helicopter was dispatched in Oregon, just in case Cooper tried to jump. They were looking for anyone using a parachute along the flight path.
0: The FBI asked Mucklow to try to get a better look at the bomb. Cooper again willingly showed it off. She described the dynamite as eight sticks, about six inches long and one inch in diameter, the same color as her uniform jacket.
1: The deep red color led the FBI to believe there were actually highway flares, but they were not willing to risk any lives on that guess.
0: The helicopter pilots were reporting extremely difficult weather. Would Cooper really try to jump in such conditions, wearing only a business suit and a light jacket?
1: Almost immediately after takeoff, around 7.42 p.m., Cooper instructed Mucklow to leave him. He told her to close the curtain leading to first class, proceed to the cockpit, and not to come back out. All of the crew was to remain in the cockpit for the rest of the flight.
0: She did as she was told. As she left, she glanced back. Cooper appeared to be tying a rope around his waist, maybe to fasten the money bag to that glance is the last anyone saw of dan cooper
1: at 7 42 p.m the crew told the airline that they had an aft door light indicator that meant that cooper had already lowered the rear stairs they had only been flying for five minutes the airline
0: asked for someone to go back to check on cooper the cockpit acknowledged the message but did not comply instead obeying Cooper's instructions that he be left alone.
1: The FAA's chief psychiatrist told the FBI that Cooper would likely detonate the plane after departing it. If they sent no one back to look for his bomb, they would be killed by it.
0: The captain instead chose to trust his own judgment of Cooper's intentions. Cooper had no reason to hurt them if they stayed in the cockpit.
1: By 8 p.m., 20 minutes after takeoff, the flight was leveling off at 10,000 feet. The outside temperature was 7 degrees Celsius, or about 44 degrees Fahrenheit. The pilots tried to use the intercom to contact Cooper twice. They asked if he needed assistance.
0: Cooper responded from the rear flight attendant intercom simply, no, giving us the last known words spoken by Dan Cooper.
1: At 8.12 p.m., after a half hour in the air, the flight crew noticed a slight bump. It could have been caused by turbulence, or it could have been caused by a man and a heavy bag of money leaving via the rear stairs.
0: We can't be sure exactly where they were. There was no GPS back then. We know the flight path and altitude, but the cloud cover and heavy winds add a big margin of error.
1: And the F-106 fighters, though equipped with radar theoretically sensitive enough to spot a jumper, were actually unable to fly slowly enough to follow the airliner well. They missed Cooper's jump.
0: The National Guard helicopter dispatched over Oregon missed him, too. The weather, technological quirks, human error, and the needle-in-a-haystack nature of trying to spot a man jumping from a plane all contributed to Cooper's daring escape.
1: Dan Cooper simply vanished into the night. The crew and the FBI both believe the bump detected by the plane at 8.12 was when Cooper jumped. Flight
0: 305 continued on to Reno as planned. Before landing, they attempted again to contact the hijacker over the intercom, though they suspected he was no longer aboard. They received no response.
1: The stairs scraped against the runway as the 727 landed. They couldn't be raised from the cockpit, and no one from the cockpit had gone back to raise them.
0: As the plane came to a stop, it was surrounded by the FBI, reporters, and spectators. D.B. Cooper was already famous.
1: Now on the ground and stopped, Captain Scott opened the cockpit door and pushed aside the first-class curtain. He was halfway through asking again if Cooper needed help before he became certain he was, in fact, alone.
0: Law enforcement searched the plane for explosives and found no sign of a bomb, or the money, or the man who took them off the rear stairs into the night.
1: Two of the parachutes remained, but two had been taken, including the faulty backup chute. One of the remaining chutes had been cannibalized and cut, some of its cords removed, perhaps used to tie the money bag to Cooper's waist.
0: But where was the hijacker? Cooper was about to become the subject of a long, fruitless search. If he lived, he was never brought to justice. If he died, we have no evidence of it. Neither his parachute nor his body were ever found.
1: The money never re-entered circulation on its own either, so he didn't spend any of it. From here on, it's all just speculation. This is where the facts of the case end.
0: The audaciousness of the crime has inspired experts, laypeople, law enforcement, and true crime journalists over the years to wrestle with the question, who was D.B. Cooper?
1: A modern Robin Hood, the subject of a strange sort of admiration.
0: All D.B. Cooper theorists either believe they knew who he was or wish they did, and many Cooper fans seem to wish they were him.
1: Of the skyjacking cases of the 70s, he is the only one who got away. He is the only one who vanished.
0: All we really know is he wasn't D.B. Cooper. He wasn't even Dan Cooper. So who might he have been? Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
1: Now the story continues.
0: In 1971, D.B. Cooper had successfully gotten away with the biggest plane hijacking to date, all while staying effectively anonymous. The FBI's investigation needed to scale up if they were ever going to find out who Cooper really was. They interviewed everyone who interacted with Cooper in the airport, even tracking down the man who'd sold him his ticket. None of the interviews yielded anything useful.
1: A series of four letters, signed D.B. Cooper, were mailed to the FBI in the following days. Three were anonymized by using letters cut from magazines, and one was handwritten.
0: After studying the letters, the FBI apparently concluded that they weren't particularly promising leads, or perhaps not authentic. They are not mentioned in
1: Investigator Himmelsbach's post-retirement book. The paucity of clues combined with the possibility of hoaxes left the FBI with a tightrope to walk. They could go to the public, requesting tips and leads, but doing so would require them to give some information away. They would have to release composite sketches of the man and some of the facts of the case.
0: That meant people could easily call in hoaxes and Cooper would know if the FBI was close on his trail.
1: It also meant a deluge of calls from people whose neighbors just bought a boat or whose co-worker walked with a fresh limp.
0: But not going public would mean missing out on a chance to get leads. And despite knowing almost everything he did from the moment he arrived in the airport to the moment he jumped, the FBI knew nothing about what happened before or after.
1: So, the FBI made the decision to request help from the public. They withheld a few facts in an effort to help weed out the hoaxers. And then
0: they endured the tips, thousands of tips, all of which they had an obligation to investigate. Most were easily cleared. Sometimes the suspect wouldn't even know they were being investigated before they were cleared.
1: Some of the people on the list were suspicious and were investigated thoroughly for years. Others were quickly cleared. Still others were cleared, then reinvestigated after a new piece of evidence came to light. The biggest question was whether Cooper could have lived. If he was dead, that obviously would have ruled out a lot of suspects. Without knowing the answer, the FBI had to consider even the most tenuous leads.
0: If Cooper had lived, where was he? Did he hike out of the wilderness and just go back to work on Monday? That is one theory popular with many Cooper fans and investigators, that Cooper did it for the thrill of success and simply returned to his life as it was before.
1: That theory is tempting because if he lived, you'd think he would have spent the money. So why wasn't the money spent? Despite careful monitoring for the stolen bill's serial numbers, none of it ever turned up at banks, as you'd expect if it had been spent. If you want to believe Cooper lived, you either have to believe he lost the money in the fall, or he didn't do it for the money in the first place.
0: On the other hand, if he died, where was the body? An extensive air search and massive manhunt scoured the forest
1: yard by yard. One possibility is that Cooper was unlucky and landed in a man-made lake called Lake Merwin. Lake Merwin was along the flight path of the plane near where Cooper was thought to have jumped. In the days following the crime,
0: helicopters scoured the whole jump region looking for parachutes. One helicopter crew had reported that they'd spotted an object that might have been a parachute on the lake, though it either was a false sighting or had submerged under the waves by the time the investigators on the ground arrived. If it was Cooper's parachute, that was probably bad news for Cooper, who was last seen with a heavy bag tied around his waist.
1: Did he live? Was it even possible?
0: According to AP correspondent Luis Cabrera, reporting in on the FBI's then-ongoing investigation in 2001. The FBI uh, works under the assumption that he probably didn't make it because it was ra- raining quite heavily that night. The plane was going uh, better than 170 miles an hour, and he was wearing a business suit with loafers. So even if he did somehow manage to uh, make it to the ground, it's uh, there's some pretty rugged terrain around there and he would have had to hike out.
1: Many parachuting experts do not believe he could have lived, dressed and laden down as he was, with only one working chute. But if he crashed, where did his chute go? We would have expected to find it tangled in the trees.
0: A veteran parachutist once told investigator Himmelsbach that someone diving at night through clouds over mountains would have no idea how far below the ground was. Fear and uncertainty would tempt them to pull their ripcord right away.
1: Cooper had created this problem for himself. The FBI negotiators had offered him military-style parachutes, which would easily have been obtained from a nearby airbase. Those parachutes opened automatically, based on barometric pressure. No need to pull a cord. Cooper had refused these parachutes. These
0: civilian parachutes, though, were manual. Specifically, they were stunt diver chutes designed for people to do tricks and formations in the air, releasing the parachute at the last possible moment.
1: The military chutes were designed to open gradually, gently slowing the parachutists down.
0: But the civilian stunt chutes Cooper had picked would open suddenly. That's fine in normal weather, but not in severe winds like these. The parachutes simply weren't
1: designed to handle them. The strong winds in the storm would have sent Cooper tumbling. If he'd opened the parachute while tumbling in the storm, the experts said, the winds would have shredded the parachute. And Cooper's backup parachute, as we know, didn't work.
0: The FBI, unable to determine whether he lived or died, had a huge slew of potential culprits to examine.
1: Jack Caulfield was a con man who was serving time when he convinced his cellmate that he was Cooper. His story was plausible. He said he'd burned his parachute and lost the money.
0: Himmelsbach saw this as another one of Kaufelt's cons. Kaufelt was trying to sell this story to a Hollywood studio. He stood to gain from getting people to believe he was Cooper.
1: Himmelsbach never disclosed why he was so sure Kaufelt wasn't the guy. He wrote in his book that the story didn't line up with some of the facts of the case that the FBI didn't make public.
0: Perhaps because that non-answer is particularly unsatisfying, Caulfield's name kept coming up. Some journalists and Cooper fans remained, or remain, convinced Caulfield did it, as does his former cellmate. Every few years, the theory resurfaces.
1: One person the FBI received multiple tips about was Ted Mayfield, a parachutist and no stranger to law enforcement. He had armed robbery on his rap sheet. In 1977, five years after
0: Cooper's skyjacking, Mayfield stole an airplane, and decades after Mayfield was quickly cleared in the Cooper investigation in 1994, he was charged with negligent homicide when two of his skydiving students were killed by non-functioning parachutes. As recently as 2010, he was charged with a crime, this time flying an airplane without a license.
1: Despite having the right resume, Mayfield was never seriously considered to be a suspect by Himmelsbach. Even though Himmelsbach had met Mayfield because of an incident on an airfield, most of Mayfield's more severe crimes were not committed until after Himmelsbach had cleared him, or even after Himmelsbach had retired. Knowing what Himmelsbach knew at the time, clearing Mayfield made sense. But
0: Mayfield had an alibi. During the search operation for Cooper, The same night Cooper jumped, Mayfield had called Himmelsbach to offer his advice on the case.
1: It was a great alibi, to be sure. But suppose Mayfield had been Cooper and had somehow found his way out of the remote wilderness and to a phone line in a few short hours that night. There were no cell phones or even sat phones in 1971. It's unlikely, yes, but not impossible
0: Mayfield and Himmelsbach don't seem to have agreed on the timeline. Himmelsbach says in his book that Mayfield called him. But Mayfield recalled that Himmelsbach called him as early as the search for parachutes while Cooper's plane was still circling over Seattle. If Mayfield's recollection was correct, it would be impossible for Mayfield to be Cooper since, well, Cooper was still on the plane.
1: But how well can you trust an unverified alibi? Maybe Himmelsbach was too hasty in eliminating Mayfield.
0: Mayfield died in 2015 while hand-starting a propeller airplane. His arm was struck by the propeller, and because he was on blood-thinning medication, he bled out before help could arrive. Because of his death, Mayfield's only certain connections to Cooper were the calls he made helping the FBI.
1: The case moved on. The FBI picked up men for flashing cash at bars and bragging, or buying new businesses, or tipping waitresses fifty dollars. One lead turned out to have been on Lake Merwin that night rescuing a stranded boater, and a pair of con men fleeced a Newsweek reporter out of tens of thousands of dollars by claiming one of them, in a wig, was Cooper. Looking into dead-end leads like these would occupy Himmelsbach on and off for the remaining nine years of his career at the FBI.
0: But it wasn't all business as usual. On April 7th, 1972, another skyjacker committed a copycat hijacking. He parachuted to the ground over Utah and survived the jump.
1: The copycat was caught just two days later on April 9th. Immediately, he became a suspect in Cooper's hijacking as well. He never directly answered questions about Cooper's hijacking when interrogated, leaving the truth open to speculation.
0: Though he clearly had the skills necessary, he didn't match the descriptions given by witnesses, and he had alibis that held up. He was still tried and convicted for the hijacking he had committed, though. He received a 45-year sentence. While in prison, he continued to decline to talk about the Cooper incident.
1: The copycat did not serve that full sentence. Two years after he was sent to prison, he staged a daring escape. He remained free for three months before the FBI caught up to him in Virginia Beach. The copycat engaged the agents in a gunfight. When the dust cleared, the copycat was dead.
0: FBI agent Nicholas O'Hara, who fired the shotgun that killed the copycat, believed the copycat and Cooper were the same person. He is known to have said, quote, When I shot the copycat, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time, end quote. However, the FBI's investigators on the Cooper case were unconvinced.
1: Another lead came from a private investigation run by a man named John Banks. He spent a year negotiating a deal with the airline's insurers that entitled him to a portion of the recovered funds if he could find any. The search would take him two years. Since the skies and the
0: ground had been scoured, Banks boarded a submersible, a small submarine, and dove into the deep waters of Lake Merwin.
1: Merwin wasn't always a lake. It had been a tree-lined canyon before the dam was built in the 30s. The corpses of rotting trees still stood on its sloping walls, hundreds of feet below the surface
0: banks said that diving in lake merwin was like
1: diving in a forest on the first dive banks slammed into one of the trees for a moment he was sure he'd seriously damaged his submersible or trapped himself if the tree branches were still strong they could have easily snagged the sub but the rotted limb simply snapped off as the submersible
0: settled on the bottom Banks caught his breath while chunks of tree limbs rained harmlessly down on the submersible's hull, filling the sub with eerie sounds.
1: Banks scoured the bottom of the lake over many dives, investing more than 5,000 man-hours in research and diving time in a search that took him two years. He uncovered no signs of Cooper or his parachute.
0: By the late 1970s, the case was going cold. The FBI started reassigning its agents.
1: A placard explaining how to lower the aft stairs of a 727 was found in 1978 along the flight path, just north of where Cooper was suspected to have jumped. Exciting though this was, it didn't help much in the search for Cooper.
0: Some of the money turned up embedded in a riverbank at the border of Washington and Oregon in 1980. Aside from that bundle of decaying bills and the placard, no other direct evidence of Cooper's jump has emerged.
1: Eventually, in April 1980, Himmelsbach retired.
0: And in 2016, the FBI finally closed their active cold case investigation.
1: Even though the mystery seemed to have fizzled out, the myth endured. In the public imagination, Cooper was a folk hero. He'd stuck it to the man and gotten away with it.
0: But the airline Cooper had targeted wasn't really the man. They were a random victim with deep pockets. Cooper had told his captives that he didn't bear a grudge against their airline. He just had a grudge in general.
1: Likewise, Cooper's admirers don't seem to care about where the money came from. They admire him simply because he got away with it. If $200,000, or more than $1.2 million in today's dollars, dropped out of the sky into your lap, what would that feel like? Would you go into work the next day?
0: In some circles, he became a Robin Hood figure, though Himmelsbach liked to point out that Cooper had threatened to kill dozens of innocent hostages, and he hadn't robbed the rich to give to the poor.
1: Still, those are the case facts. Facts don't always matter when it comes to crafting myth.
0: And so journalists and fans continue to be captivated by the myth of Cooper.
1: One such investigative journalist published a bombshell book in 2016, he let the world know he had finally cracked the case. Employing a vast network of private investigators, he dug into the past of a man whom he identified as D.B. Cooper.
0: The case was persuasive. Allegedly, the subject had a turbulent childhood in California, lying easily to get out of trouble. He was a good liar and persuasive.
1: He used his inventiveness to build a functioning glider when he was 14. And he used
0: his looseness with the truth to get anything he wanted. Without difficulty, he stole money, he stole cars, and he persuaded his long-suffering wife that he was not philandering.
1: We'll call this man the veteran because he served in Vietnam. He was drawn to war by the allure of violence and the charm of flying machines.
0: He learned to fly a helicopter and other aircraft, which he loved he became decorated for daring rescues of men and officers deep
1: in enemy territory. But he also became known as a cheat and a thief. He hoarded stolen military supplies, weapons, even a general's jeep and ran a black market. When he was about to be found out, he loaded everything into the jeep and drove it into a river to hide the evidence.
0: The investigative reporter also cited a belief that he had used the exact model plane Cooper hijacked to do supply drops out the back ramp. It would explain why Cooper knew so much about the plane. Some of the veteran's airdrops were apparently freelance, unauthorized by command.
1: His friends knew him as having a calm and friendly demeanor, despite his dangerous behavior, which fits perfectly with the flight crew's recollection of Cooper.
0: The veteran was eventually discharged when his deceits caught up to him. He came back to the States and used his military service as a means to gain employment, never telling people the whole story and inventing
1: medals he'd never won. In between jobs, he ran cons. He allegedly had a long con in Oregon, posing as a Swiss noble, the Baron de Winter, who was visiting America.
0: He became legendary in the town of Astoria, Oregon. He promised all the residents that they could all come visit him in Switzerland and stay at his estate.
1: His apparent generosity caused many locals to lower their guard. Many would let him stay with them for a week or so, rent-free.
0: And once he was in someone's home, he would swindle them, spinning stories about how his stay had become more expensive than he'd anticipated and would be grateful if they could feed him, too.
1: Only when the locals began swapping notes many months into De Winter's stay, did they wise up. De Winter immediately skipped town. Mere days after De Winter vanished from Astoria, D.B.
0: Cooper arrived in an airport in Oregon.
1: And mere days after D.B. Cooper himself vanished, the veteran, using his real name, reappeared in California.
0: The investigative reporter also pointed to those letters the FBI had received the first two were mailed from vancouver and portland followed by letters from northern california one of the california letters was mailed less than 35 miles from the veteran's home the other just 50 miles away
1: and if all the letters were written by one writer which the fbi believed was the case they suggested someone moving quite quickly the veteran had a private plane
0: the four letters would seem to be a smoking gun tracing the path from D.B. Cooper's jump site to the veteran's home in California. And yet, a trained skydiver, the veteran would have easily recognized the non-functioning training parachute that D.B. Cooper mistakenly took.
1: And if he had done these supply drops, he probably wouldn't have needed to take time figuring out how to lower the rear stairs, as FBI investigator Himmelsbach documented he had.
0: And the veteran was in his late 20s when the hijacking took place. Witnesses described someone in their 40s or 50s.
1: The investigative reporter explained this by referencing a statement from one witness where they said it seemed like Cooper was wearing makeup intended to make him look older.
0: Like every other theory, it makes sense if you squint. A convincing picture emerges, but only if you selectively ignore evidence that contradicts it. The theory requires a leap of faith. And that's not the same thing as really being sure who D.B. Cooper was.
1: FBI investigators were aware of the veteran, but never seriously considered him as the true identity of D.B. Cooper for these various reasons.
0: Dozens of people have been under suspicion. None can be firmly tied to the crime with any conclusive evidence. So what happened to Cooper? What is our official theory? We believe D.B. Cooper survived the jump only to die of exposure in the forest. Had Cooper lived, he probably would have spent the money. And if he died on impact, we probably would have found his parachute or his body. But that's why we believe that there is a third possibility. We believe he survived the fall, hid the parachute, but died of exposure in the remote, cold mountains before he could reach civilization.
1: This conclusion could be supported by the money found in the riverbank. The FBI's analysis stated that it looked like it was deposited there by natural processes, not by someone stashing it for later retrieval.
0: It's a good theory, and obviously the one we believe. Yes, Cooper might have been one of the FBI's many suspects, or he might have been the subject of a freelance investigation, or he might have slipped past everyone. But the truth is probably staring us in the face.
1: Former FBI agent Gary Tallis who was part of the helicopter search, believes this theory. Early in the investigation, he disagreed with his colleague's assumption that the jump was not survivable. He believes it is most likely Cooper injured himself in the fall, but survived. He buried or burned his parachute. Next, unable to orient himself in the remote wilderness and with no survival equipment or supplies, he died, quote, his bones scattered all over the world by scavenging animals. An anticlimactic end to a dramatic heist. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
0: You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at Parcast Network, or at ParCast.com.
1: A new episode comes out next week.
0: Just because something is gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Tom Pike and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.